This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In our second episode of Season 4, Uzma Jamil is in conversation with Sylvia Chan Malik on Muslims as Racialized Subjects. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Reorient, Network Reorient, uh, podcast series in conversation. Today, I have Sylvia Chan Malik, who is in the Department of American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. Uh, welcome, Professor Chan Malik. Thank you. Thank you, Uzma. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I wanted to begin, I think today um, the theme, the broad theme is really talking about Muslims as racialized subjects in relation to both blackness and whiteness. Um, but I wanted to sort of begin by first talking about the category of racialization and how it's applied to Muslims um, before we sort of get into the, the um, specifics of, of where some of your work has been in the U.S. as well. So I guess my first my first um, question is, I, you know, the, where do we, when and where do we begin to think and talk about the racialization of Muslims as a distinctive category? Or the other way around would be, when do we begin to th- talk about Muslims as racialized um, in particular contexts? So I think for me, the, my first thought in, in response to that is um, 9-11 and the literature that came out of that sort of detailing the various ways in which uh, Muslims were uh, experiencing increased Islamophobia, particularly as racialized Muslims. But that is very specific in some ways to the American context um, as as a national context. And I know there's other literature that talks about racialization of religion and and racialization of Muslims in other areas. So let's, let's, I guess, let's begin there. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. Again, uh, thank you so much for having me. And it's really um, an interesting time uh, at the end of 2020. Um, You know, we're kind of seeing almost a year of this global pandemic and in the U.S. thinking about a new administration coming in. And again, the question of Muslim, in my mind, um, always really shines a light um, and is sort of a way of refracting so many other issues that we are dealing with in these times of kind of what seems like perpetual crisis, issues around race, religion, also gender and sexuality, thinking about statecraft, thinking about the aftermath and the legacies of colonialism, imperialism in our present day societies and Western societies. Um, And we're really seeing an interesting development um, across both the US, North America, Europe, et cetera, uh, conversations around Muslims. So I, I just think the conversation is timely and I appreciate us being able to have it. I think the place I'd like to start is just the, with the term itself, um, racialization, because since 9-11, since, you know, so it's going on 20 years now, this term has started to emerge really forcefully, not just in scholarship, but it's come to trickle down into popular culture and media and news media as well, kind of the racialization of Islam, the racialization of Muslims. And for a while, I was very much kind of talking about that too, because in a very crude way, we're just talking about the ways in which Muslims are subjected to state violence, how they become seen through a particular lens of state violence, these logics of terrorism, these logics of um, kind of otherness, foreignness, and then become um, uh, subject to things like increased surveillance, imprisonment, et cetera. So in in the beginning, kind of following 9-11, I think racialization very much just meant that, Muslims being turned into these objects of hate crimes or um, extra surveillance at the airport and things like that. But I think as we've gone on and as someone who comes from a background of race and ethnic studies and is really thinking about um, what race is, what racism is, is racism a singular type of phenomenon that we can parse into different spaces in the world or is it racisms, is it in the plural that we have to very discreetly kind of think about how race manifests itself in different contexts. I think we really need to ask ourselves, what do we mean? when we talk about 
the racialization of Muslims. And, and I, I really prefer to talk about the racialization of Muslims, Muslim bodies, Muslim subjects, and not the racialization of Islam. Um, because I think when you talk about Islam as an ideology, as a religion, as a culture, et cetera, it really starts to bring into questions around religion, theology, et cetera, that I think kind of are also tangential connected to issues of race. So all of that to say, when we say the racialization of Muslims, are we anchoring it to a specific place? Like you said, 9-11. And what I've come to understand is no. So I'll just give very kind of a, a, a basic example in the US context. Um, I've been reading a lot about Thomas Jefferson and the colonial period and the founders' engagements with Islam. And, and what is so striking and fascinating to me is that in this time, in the 18th century, you have tens of thousands of enslaved African Muslims here in the United States who make up anywhere from one-fifth to one-third um, of the enslaved population in the Americas. At the same time that you have this um, enormous presence of actual Muslim subjects in the US, you have conversations by the founding fathers around whether a Muslim could actually be president of the United States. There's this wonderful essay by, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Denise Spellberg, that a historian, Denise Spellberg, titled, Could a Muslim be President? And in these conversations that the founders are having around whether a Muslim could be president, in their imaginaries, Muslims, or Muslims as they called them, were really synonymous with Ottomans and Turks. So even in this colonial imaginary where they're looking at Muslims as kind of the outermost limits of religious tolerance in the United States, they are imagining it through a white European lens in which Muslim is equated with the Ottoman Empire. And these are the kind of epitome, and also Barbary pirates, kind of liminally also kind of Moorish pirates from the Barbary coast and things like that. The even, even, the, even the like possibility of thinking that these enslaved Africans were Muslim was beyond the purview of the founding fathers of the United States. So for me, that is an intense moment of racialization, right? It is kind of an imprint on the racial consciousness um, in this country. The anti-Blackness is so strong in that moment that Muslim, even as an other, even as a foreigner, even as a threat, cannot even be imagined as Black. So that also, to me, as we start to talk about what racialization is, we have to think about these layers of meaning that contribute to the present. And I very much think, so uh, You know, we'll talk about different contexts, but in the context of the United States, I think that denial, that disavowal of Blackness being Muslim is both you know, it's really fascinating because even in our anti-Muslim racism, we disavow Blackness in this country. Um, so I think that is part and parcel of the racialization. And that's why it actually makes it so hard to think about the ways in which Muslims are being surveilled, um, terrorized, imprisoned, et cetera, because we have not even yet begun to reckon with these previous forms of racialization that inform the present. So that's just an example of how, you know, like I don't have a concrete answer, but, you know, to think about the racialization of Islam and Muslims really requires a deep dive into the specific ways in which race is constituted in a particular place, in which racism is implemented, in which the state constructs race and religion in specific ways that have to do with how they are kind of thinking about nationalism and nationalist narratives and citizenship. Um, so all of that to say, to talk about the racialization of Muslims is far beyond just thinking about, you know, the conflation between Islam and terror that happens after 9-11. For me, you know, um, both theoretically and even practically, I, I think we have to think like that in order to, um, um, come up with more meaningful and substantive ways of, 
you know, kind of encapsulating or theorizing or articulating what it is. No, I really like that. Uh, I really like your points. And I think in particular, so I want to tease out maybe two things. One, um, I think that the idea of how we think about Muslims as racialized has always been in relation to something. So it is in relation then to the way the nation is constructed at a particular moment in time. So it's, it's not eternal. Um, and then at that moment in time, who is the other or who is the, who is the us and who is the them, right? And I think, so th that is one sort of very broad, um, broad characterization. And then once we sort of maybe go down a bit deeper, then you mentioned anti-blackness. And, and then on the other side of that is then what is the whiteness of the nation? How is the whiteness of the nation constituted um, in relation to that? So I think those are some really sort of um, very rich uh, ways of beginning to think about this. And I, and I, I like the fact that there is, uh, or not like the fact, but I appreciate the, the point around um, the historicity and the temporality and then the different ways in which the nation is constructed. But, and I will come back to this later, but I also want to think maybe more uh, transnationally mm -hmm. as well, you know, in, sure. in sort of later part of our conversation. But I just want to signal it now that this is something that um, we, we can think about in very particular ways, in very specific national ways, but also um, begin to think about it. Yeah, I, yeah, I just wanted to add really quickly too, since we are speaking transnationally, you are in Canada and I'm in the US, um, settler colonialism in the US, which has had, you know, you know, a, a history that must be reckoned with as well, you know, alongside anti-blackness in Canada also, you know, has a kind of um, presence and legacy that is utterly connected to the quote unquote racialization of Muslims there in terms of who is a good Muslim subject? What types of narratives do you need to engage in in relation to land, in relation to belonging that make you now a Muslim Canadian or a proper Muslim Canadian subject, right? So all of these um, uh, histories really come to bear. And I think, again, it's hard to kind of present one overarching Kind of understanding or definition of what this racialization is because so many of these histories like you said have to come to bear when we consider those terms um and and you know not to jump on your other question but really that was the the main thinking behind um the the the, the central argument of my book being muslim in which I was really trying to capture that there is no kind of one way of quote unquote being Muslim in particular for Muslim women in the US, but it is always an engagement between a particular body that is racialized, gendered, sexualized, um, kind of interpolated in particular ways, engaging with the ways in which Islam as a non-white, non-Christian religion presence, religious presence is always imagined in particular ways as what I call a racial religious form, where it is a kind of associated with a religious monstrous ideology, you know, which, which harkens all the way back to kind of the, the crusades and the ways Islam emerged in Western Christendom as this type of monstrous ideology. Um, you know, it, it's kind of imagine within how Islam is being constructed in that particular moment within the racial and religious logics at that time. So we really have to be attentive to both the bodies that are being seen as Muslim, that are calling themselves Muslim at a particular point in time, and then the ways in which those in power and those who are creating discourse are imagining Islam and Muslims through racial religious lenses at any, partic any particular moment in time. So I think it's that, that was the flexibility I was trying to capture in the book, where I think just being attentive to those two things starts to give us a much more robust understanding of how Islam operates um, in different Western, um, in, in particular post-colonial imaginaries. Mm -hmm. So I guess I wanna pull out a couple of things in what you've said. Um, one, I think about how, as you mentioned, white settler colonial histories um, create the Muslim subject vis-a-vis -vis the white national subject, right? Uh, and really, I'm, and using the terminology from uh, Sunara Tavani's work. And um, thinking about then the ways in which 
not only is how this subject is created and, and you know, I, I sort of take your point around bodies, how bodies are named and categorized and labeled and the specificity of that, but then also the ways in which state structures, state policies then um, reproduce and reinforce the national body vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim body or the body however we want to call that other. So in, you know, in the in Canadian context, the indigenous other, um, you know, so the extermination of the indigenous other in order to create the white national body. Um, enslaved uh, people. So, you know, the history of slavery in Canada is not as well known, but it is part of what constitutes this as a country, as a white settler um, colonial nation. So what, um, I guess, maybe I'm, I'm gesturing here towards talking about sort of what in Canada, we're called the White Canada policies around immigration around the turn of the century, where the first, um, you know, what we would call Muslims, but who were not called Muslims in the census at the time. So they were called Ottomans, or they were called Turks, they were called Syrians. Um, and how does that sort of enrich our understanding? And then from that point, I think I'd like you to talk a little bit more about your book. Okay. Hmm. Well, I think that's a wonderful question because it also gestures towards the disciplinary sort of methods that we use to talk about meth um, to talk about Muslims. So one of the things that I think a lot about coming from the field of race and ethnic studies as it's evolved in the U.S. from a decolonial sort of third world liberationist for formation out of the 1960s um, into um, I would say in this time, a much more scholarly, academic, theoretical conversation around what race is, right? So kind of moving from activist praxis into more kind of academic and theoretical understandings of race. What I would say is that Muslims occupy an interesting space because when ethnic studies emerged in the late 1960s, there was a, a huge focus on really just kind of centering the identities and humanities of people of color. Like who are Native American indigenous people? Who are Asian American? Who are Latinx, Chicanx peoples? Right? And really kind of focusing on identity, what we'd come to call identity politics, et cetera. You know, kind of saying, who are these people? Let's write our histories into the American narrative. What some people might call now a sort of neoliberal exceptionalism narrative of claiming America. Oh, we're all Americans. Whereas now we've moved into a space where we have critical ethnic studies or where we have decolonial studies. We're really not looking at identities so much, but we're looking at these histories of subjection. We're looking at anti-Blackness. We're looking at settler colonialism. We're looking at histories of genocide and enslavement and xenophobia and internment, et cetera. And what I've been grappling with a lot, and I don't know if this answers your question, but what I've been grappling with a lot is Muslims occupy an interesting space in these larger conversations around ethnic versus critical ethnic studies, identity politics versus kind of critical race studies, et cetera. Because on the one hand, I think it's utterly critical that we critique, call out, intervene, really make legible these policies of surveillance and the ways they build upon these incredibly violent histories of harm you know, on black and brown peoples, indigenous peoples in North America. On the other hand, I believe that Muslims are so inscrutable in so many ways because they have been seen through this orientalized lens for so long, this colonial lens, or completely erased, as I said, in the case of enslaved African Muslims, where I also feel a bit of discomfort kind of only seeing Muslims through the lens of being subjects of the state where I do feel like a lot of kind of left-leaning or progressive scholars who are looking at state surveillance or Muslim racialization are not attentive at all to kind of the realities and internal, um, uh, uh, re, you know, kind of internal um, dynamics within Muslim life in North America. So I think all of this is to say, um, you know, in relation to policy, I think looking at Muslims constitutes a really interesting space that forces us, those of us like you yourself and myself, to kind of 
be really careful <laughs> all the time about how we're situating Islam and Muslims. Because on the one hand, we definitely need to critique what is happening. But on the other time, we don't want to, at, at, the, at the same time, we don't want to completely efface the communities and the realities that might be going on within them. So I don't even know if I'm like kind of touched the question that you asked at all, but I guess I'm speaking to these disciplinary issues. Like how are we even being kind of, uh, 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 kind of led to talk about Muslims through our different disciplinary fields, right? And, and I think about that a lot because I, I feel like there are spaces that we still need to get to that these histories of Orientalism, these histories of identity politics, these ideas of kind of claiming a home in the West kind of um, foreclose to us from how we talk about Muslimness in the West. So I guess I wanna, I wanna maybe go into this a little bit more. Um, the question of how do we talk about Muslimness in the West? And you sort of sketched out a dichotomy here between talking about Muslim experiences um, within Muslim communities and then um, state uh, responses to Muslims as very particular kind of subjects. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, when What are the distinctions that you're thinking about when, mm -hmm. when you're drawing that? Yeah, I mean, because as someone who, you know, engage, I mean, again, I come out of this field, ethnic studies, where kind of working with the community that I write about and think about is central to my work. You know, I'm very involved in Muslim community organizations with the different um, conflicts and histories and, 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 and debates that are going on in this community. So for example, you know, there is Muslim, uh, there is racism directed at Muslim communities, but there's also a great deal of racism within Muslim communities. So one of the difficult conversations that, you know, we have to have in Muslim communities is how does anti-blackness play out within Muslim communities, right? So you have this community that is in the US, I, I, Canada I'm sure has different numbers, but that is roughly one third South Asian, roughly one third uh, you know, Arab, North, North African, and then roughly you know, one third African-American. I, I know there's, you know, there's converts, there's growing number of Latinx converts, uh, white converts to Islam, et cetera, um, I, I understand. But so when you have this incredibly diverse um, community that is like mostly non-white, how do you have conversations about anti-blackness in that community? So I guess what I'm saying is that we, we, we are trying to talk about both the internal dynamics within a community, a religious community, you know, that is bound by um, faith and which people still, I mean, different engagements with faith and which people still look at this monolith from the outside. It's like there's such a lag between how Islam and Muslims get talked about in the media, people's notions of it, and the really complex and, you know, kind of, um, 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 conversations that are going on within the community, not just around issues of race, around issues of gender and sexuality, around class, you know? So again, like I'm trying to figure out a way in my own work, and I was trying to do it in the book a little bit, but I'm, I'm definitely trying to think about it in my next project. How do you articulate those spaces, especially if your work is thinking about critiquing the state and also articulating what liberation might look like, you know, for larger, for, you know, in the larger context, how do you think about um, these different spaces in a way that doesn't, again, replicate um, existing notions about Islam and Muslims? It's, it's really, it's really challenging. Um, and so that's that's really what I was thinking about, like that there are there, there are debates within Muslim communities that are so hard to even make legible to. So, so for example, left leaning progressive folks who just want to include Muslims in the conversation. And you're like, oh, but this it's really there's some problems like who you even are going to get for your panel to talk about to be your Muslim is complicated. Right. So those are the types of really practical concerns I think about a lot. Yeah. So um, I, I guess I agree with you in the sense of working to um, critique the monolith, so the idea of a monolithic Muslim and the homogenous Muslim. Um, but I think for me, um, 
there are two things that come to mind. One, I think that the ways in which the state responds to the Muslim subject or, or constitutes the Muslim subject also has an impact on the way that Muslims understand themselves and talk about themselves to mm -hmm. other Muslims, like not necessarily just to people outside the community. Um, so I think, you know, sort of the categories in which we think about ourselves as Muslims is related in sense to the ways in which others talk about Muslims as well. So in a very sort of broad sense, Muslims as immigrants. This is such a sort of pervasive way of thinking about Muslims, not only internally within our communities, but also externally in terms of how the state responds to Muslims. Yeah. That's just sort of one very kind of broad category. Um, and I think then the Muslims as coming from very specific nationalities, right? So there's, there's because Muslims are seen as immigrants, you can trace them to a particular uh, country or sort of national origin. And then you can create a sort of that hyphen that sort of connects Muslim from, you know, X country in, in South Asia, East Asia, Middle East, North Africa, et cetera, to, to the, you know, the Western country in the North American context in the US or Canada. So I think that's one thought. Um, my other thought, I think, is that there's this danger of um, wanting to kind of prove the humanity of Muslims by focusing on community histories and experiences and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, and there's such a, there's a, sort of a whole host of critique around uh, Muslims having to prove their humanity to, to others, to um, sort of white Western others, however we choose to characterize them, um, which I think kind of gets in the way as well, right? And I think it kind of, it speaks to what we're talking about in terms of the tokenism of Muslims, like this kind of Muslim represents this kind of people. And so, you know, uh, and which is gendered as well. So, you know, women who wear hijab versus Muslim women who do not wear hijab. Um, or, you know, it has its implications in at airports, people who look Muslim versus people who do not look Muslim, but may very well be Muslim as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I want to trouble this sort of dichotomy that you have presented at the same time I, I do see it as well. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely, I mean, what you're saying is totally true. I mean, that's that, you know, Mamdani's good Muslim, bad Muslim thing, where the good Muslim subject is one that is cult cultivated through these liberal discourses, post-Cold War liberal discourses of good citizenship. And CVE, the Countering Violent Extremism Policies, are the perfect example of that. That's why they are so insidious, because what they do is they say, oh, we're not going to come and raid you in the night. We're not going to come and just, you know, we're going to just work with you. We're going to have um, conversations with your community. We're going to have law enforcement come to your masjid and kind of let's work together. And so you can work with us. You come be part of, you know, the statecraft that is going to surveil your communities and we'll all do it together. And that's really the insidious nature. So what you say is exactly true that how Muslims and then, you know, within Muslim communities themselves. And again, that's another debate that goes on within Muslim communities, I'm sure in the Canada, in Canada as well, but in US, like, you know, working with law enforcement, like, how do we, you know, do we do that? How do we, what, you know, and that's another, you know, space where race comes in, where African American Muslims have a long history of rejecting that, saying, no, we're not going to do that. We, you know, the whole reason we're Muslim is because of you know wanting to critique police violence and state brutality, whereas you know more newly arrived immigrant Muslim communities might be far more amenable to working with law enforcement because they want to be seen as good citizens. So so these I mean these are absolutely part of those concerns, and so that again kind of speaks to why it's an unwieldy and really. Um, and a lot, I mean, I actually think I'm, I've been kind of speaking about it in terms of constriction, like, oh, it's so hard to talk about Muslims, but it's actually really a space of possibilities too, because it opens up all these different ways in which the term Muslim, as I started the conversation with, can be used as a type of refraction to both in a way, kind of look at the history without kind of saying, let's humanize you know, as by saying, okay, the history of African-American Islam, you know, wow, what a legacy, right? But a legacy of critique, a legacy of protest, a legacy of struggle, a legacy of rejecting 
US imperialism and kind of good citizenship, you know, wanting to stand outside of that history. Here's this legacy. It's really important to acknowledge at this moment and really highlighting that so that we see, you know, that this has been present in the United States for so long and must be recuperated or kind of highlighted in some way so that it is seen for, you know, kind of younger generations of Muslims or, you know, second or third, you know, immigrant, uh, children of immigrant Muslims, that there's a different way to live this identity in this space that is not premised upon assimilation or being a good subject or working with law enforcement, et cetera. Right. So I think that's what I was trying to speak to that not to set up kind of this clear eyed dichotomy that we have to humanize Muslims, but to say there are these what I call these insurgent legacies of Islam that have always existed um, in different spaces. And, and I think we could probably think about that in places like France right now, you know, where there's horrific anti-Muslim, you know, legislation going on by the state. You know, I'm sure, it, it, you know, to, to dig into that, you could also find these different types of insurgent legacies um, of, of Muslims in that space as well. Absolutely. So I think maybe one of the broad things that kind of emerges from this is thinking about Muslims um, as implicated within politics. So Muslims do not exist outside of politics, whether that is national politics, whether that is transnational politics, whether that is, you know, anti-colonial politics, that kind of a thing. Um, and so the Muslims, in some sense, are political subjects, regardless of where they're located or, or the point in time in which we're beginning to think about um, about their histories. So I want to come back to this a little bit, actually, in, in the U.S. context and talking about some of the histories of um, African-American Muslim communities in the U.S., and then how that might help us think about uh, Muslims uh, in relation to in relation to the politics in other countries in the present day. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work on that? Well, so, so one of the things of, of a wonderful friend and colleague of mine, um, Dr. Suad Abdul Khabir, who wrote the book Muslim Cool, um, you know, kind of brings up a wonderful point in a lot of her talks. I've seen her bring it up in lectures that the two most well-known figures, not just in the United States as Muslims, but really globally as Muslims, are Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And so that really shows the global impact and dynamism of African-American Islam in terms of capturing, capturing, I'm kind of <laughs> capturing and encapsulating these different types of political liberatory imaginaries that were emerging in the 1950s and 60s. This idea, you know, that emerged at the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, kind of this third world coalition, this third worldism, these anti-colonial liberationist struggles that were going on, um, kind of larger emergence of the ways in which Marxism and socialism and different, you know, those types of movements were emerging with along with racial um, civil rights struggles and eventually black power movements. Like they really encapsulate that, those figures, you know, Malcolm and Muhammad Ali. And so they, they, they travel all over the world as a critique of Western colonialism, but they are embedded within an Islamic tradition as well that I find often gets elided and erased in leftist progressive and radical understandings of those figures. Right, because you know they were also very much engaged with Islam and however you think about it as a religious tradition. So, so you know, with African American Islam, it's also generative for us to think about the ways in which people are struggling or kind of grappling with issues of faith, um, as well as these really capacious. Um, and international struggles for politics. And I think again, because of our disciplinary formations, like Islamic studies is over here, religious studies is over here, ethnic studies is over here, gender studies is over here. We sometimes don't have those conversations which really see that connection. So one, one person that I've been really looking at a lot to try to think through these figures is the Iranian philosopher and thinker Ali Shariati you know, to think about how he was trying to construct, and he's been called one of the architects of the Iranian revolution um, ideologically, to think about how he was trying to 
construct um, a deeply socialist understanding of Islam in this time period, right? but that was deeply rooted in Islamic traditions and religious practices. How was he doing that? And why do we not engage him when we talk about these um, uh, liberation struggles as much as others, as much as people like Franz Fanon or Che Guevara and people like that? So these are the kind of questions I'm trying to take up in my own work. Um, and I guess connecting back to African-American Islam, I really think it is such a rich site that captures that internationalist dimension of what Islam represented in the United States and how that has traveled in different ways um, all over the Western world, especially um, in those that have a colonial legacy. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so how do you think this kind of shapes uh, where we are today? And, and how do we think about, um, you know, the politics in various countries that are ongoing in terms of their um, prejudice against Muslims? So I mean, I'm thinking from the range of countries here, I'm thinking about Brexit in the UK, I'm thinking about uh, Bill 21 in Quebec, I'm thinking about Macron. And uh, you know he's going after CCIF um, in in France, uh, far right uh, you know populist governments in Germany. And the situation of that are trying to... in China. I mean, it, China. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I guess then it leads us. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So it kind of so where does this take us? I guess is the question in terms of thinking about Muslims. Um, drawing on these sort of various elements and, and taking a position against this kind of, um, these kinds of policies and this kind of politics. You know, thinking, thinking as you, as you, you know, and I, I, I'm not as familiar with those specific examples in Canada and I would really love to, and, and that's really interesting to me that there are articulations of this anti-Muslim sentiment that are really so far reaching both in very discrete sort of local ways where you can see kind of low, you know, in Quebec or whatever, where this is manifesting itself on the ground in certain ways and, or others like, you know, the Israel, Palestine and things like that, where you see it manifesting itself on the global stage at all times. And it's part of kind of our common sense um, conversations around Islam, where there's so many scales of it that I think just at the very base level, it, it, it really begs the question, why? Why does this continue in this kind of moment in which, you know, again, we have these neoliberal exceptionalist narratives. We're supposed to know that, you know, we acknowledge each other's basic humanities. We should have these basic sort of liberal narratives of the secular enlightened human self. Why does this continue to occur on such a widespread global scale from the very micro level to the most macro levels of our global politics? I think that really bears asking. I have no answer to that question at all, but to even start to ask it really forces those of us um, you know, who think about these things to make those connections. And I guess that's my larger thing as well, as someone who's a cultural historian, as someone who really loves to work in archives and do close readings at tech, of texts, I really enjoy kind of that deep dive into looking at the specifics of history, but I don't think we can do this work without taking, out, taking it out of a historical materialist perspective where it is interconnected in all of these ways. And it has, it is no coincidence at all that this rise of authoritarianism and totalitarianism worldwide, you know, that we see coming in, you know, Boris Johnson, Bolinasaro, Duterte in the Philippines, Trump, right? We see it. It's, it's no surprise that it is coinciding with this escalation of anti-Muslim racism. So I think that is a really pressing question of our times that we as scholars, we as people who are concerned <laughs> about these issues need to keep asking and pressing on. Um, and it is a collective question that I think should really be a constant backdrop of our inquiries about you know, what we started this conversation about race, 
Islam? What does it mean to racialize Muslims? Why is it happening in these different ways and manifesting in these incredibly harmful and violent ways in different places? And what are both the connections and the differences? And we have to be able to push to articulate um, this, this type of um, this type of difference in our work, both, both the difference and the connection in our work. Yes, absolutely. I think just, I mean, I, so I agree with you in the sense that there isn't like, I think a very simple answer at all in any of this. Um, but I think as you were speaking, I was thinking about how even that idea that Muslim is a very particular distinct identity um, is something that has emerged in opposition to state policies to discriminate against Muslims. Um, so the fact that, you know, and, and I think this, like those of us who work in the field can, can in some sense identify this moment within let's say the last 20, 25 years to be able to say that Muslims are a distinct group of people who are not only experiencing various things, but also um, fighting back or, or pushing back against um, various kinds of things as well, particular to their national context. But I think there's sort of a political consciousness that is distinctive. Um, but then which sort of manifests itself in very particular ways in terms of solidarity around various kinds of political issues in those particular national contexts. Um, and at the same time, I think it begins to allow us to have this conversation that you and I are having today, like in the sense of being able to talk about how Muslimness um, functions in, in different contexts and different histories and how it has come to evolve in particular ways. Um, in, in you know in in different in different places so i think yeah sorry go on no no, no. I, I mean i'm listening to you talk and i really just think our whole conversation is a testament to how deeply implicated the entire category of the muslim is embedded in you know saeed called it orientalism but within these you know hegemonic discursive formations that make up our scholarly, you know, um, spaces, our disciplines, the ways geopolitical conversations and policy are written, um, you know, th they're so bounded that um, I, I saw two, and just, you know, I, I know we're kind of running close on time, but I saw two wonderful papers um, at a conference this past weekend, um, you know, kind of thinking about the field of Islamic studies. And what does it mean to do Islamic studies in the 21st century in the West, right? Where we understand that this Orientalist frame, this colonialist frame, um, you know, has completely shaped that field, um, you know, and that, that there's this kind of Arab-centric, Middle East-centric kind of, you know, uh, kind of focus on the field when the vast majority of Muslims don't live in this region. Like we still say Muslim and Arab, like they're like conflated in some way, um, and so. There are so many um, kind of structures of power that even shape every time we say the word Muslim. And so in a way that is frightening and kind of something we have to take note of. But on the other hand, it gives a place to begin, to understand that this is a term that is so ripe for deconstruction or kind of intervention from so many different spaces. How are we talking about Muslims in women's studies? How are we talking about them in um, um, Islamic studies, in post-colonial studies? Like the ways in which it's been bounded and constructed in each of these discourses is, is, is a wonderful place to begin to start to think through um, the work that needs to be done. Absolutely. I alongside that. So I think that is sort of an epistemological project, like in, in terms of thinking about how knowledge about Muslims is constructed um, through a particular disciplinary lens, and then what kind of conversations can you have then across disciplines? And I think that has then sort of a um, parallel political uh, political trajectory. So, in the sense that Muslims are um, political subjects through different issues, which are maybe specific to certain countries, but which then has implications for thinking about Muslims transnationally. But the second part of that, I think, is that it's not just Muslims all by themselves in their own little bubble. It's Muslims in how do Muslims build alliances and solidarities with other groups of people who have sort of fought the fight, you know, in, in, again, 
looking at national histories um, in particular contexts and then thinking about um, how do we build solidarity and how do we build alliances across those categories, which I think is an ongoing, I mean, it's an ongoing um, uh, project in any case, in, in any context. But I think that sort of brings together two threads, I think, which do not necessarily need to be as separate, I think, as they are treated in the sense of thinking about the epistemological and the political um, as, as, being, as being related to each other. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I think those two those two uh, projects are absolutely create uh, um, kind of co-constituted and in, in, in interlinked. You know, kind of shifting the epistemological formations of you know how we imagine Muslims, right, in all these different spaces, and then the very real material effects of state policy um, and its impl implementation that are impacting quote unquote Muslims on the ground, like the eye needs to be on the ball, both of those spaces at all times, because they are, like you said, completely interlinked. So, so um, again, like it does occur to me that that just that question has to be continually asked that Muslims occupy a particular space in the Western cultural and political imaginary that is so kind of um, uh, powerful and 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 to be so demonized for so long in so many myriad of ways <laughs> that it really bears investigation you know if only just to say what is going on here over and over again <laughs> absolutely so i guess my last question would be then um i guess parting thoughts uh in terms of where do we go in our thinking about these things, where do we go in our work? Um, you know, and especially thinking about kind of what's happening in the world uh, with with the new government coming in in the U.S. Uh, Brexit being, I don't know, completed someday in the U.K. Um, you know, these are some sort of political realities that kind of shape our national and, and global context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know. I think, so I was part of a very, I'll give a concrete example of a spot. I was part of a really wonderful um, dialogue that happened between um, uh, scholars in the US and scholars in the UK around Islam and gender uh, very recently or about, about a year ago. And just the one thing that occurred to me that, you know, when you kind of study in discrete spaces is that I was very familiar with, um, the issues around Muslim women in the US, kind of thinking about the legacies of African-American Islam, how deeply that informs the consciousness and the presence of Islam. And when I was engaging with um, uh, scholars in the UK around these issues, around the particular kind of working class South Asian history of Muslims in the UK, a very different population of Muslims in terms of their engagement with South Asia, et cetera. There were these particular concerns that came up that were so illuminating to me to kind of understand how we could talk across these different spaces, find spaces of connection, understand kind of homeland surveillance, like they have their own, I can't, I'm, just, I'm blanking right prevent. now. Prevent. Yeah, prevent. exactly, prevent, right? Which was kind of our blueprint in the US for CVE, right? Kind of trying to think about how the state surveillance apparatus are the same, but you have quote unquote Muslims who are very different in terms of the racial, ethnic, linguistic, et cetera, makeup within those communities. And it was, like I said, it was incredibly generative for me to have those conversations, to talk across those spaces. So I would, again, like what, 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 what we were just saying in terms of having um, these different iterations of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence that are global, I think those conversations, even between the US and Canada, are incredibly generative to have because it's fascinating for me to hear about um, kind of First Nations um, engagements with Islam and Muslims or how um, Muslims are engaging with that conversation and that legislation in Canada and in the US. I would love to have more conversations with scholars in France about what they are doing on the ground in terms of dealing with that because I think it's incredibly generative in terms of thinking about 
how this internationalist, once again, to link back to that African-American kind of Islam or why the salience of it is so powerful, that it is this internationalist formation that has incredible potential to build solidarity in certain ways. And having those conversations was part of, you know, what Malcolm X was doing when he was traveling all over and which different Muslim thinkers, Shariati, et cetera, were doing in that moment. And I think those conversations are imperative for moving forward to thinking across how anti-Muslim sentiment um, is, is, is being implemented and traveling in these different places. And for those who are concerned about it and within those communities, to have those conversations, to deeply understand how we can build solidarity between those spaces. And I really, you know, I'm excited. I, I think that is a thing that I would like to do more in my work going forward. And, you know, I hope that our field um, and both our academic, our activist conversations, um, you know, kind of go towards that in terms of those of us who quote unquote do Muslim studies or whatever that is turning into in this moment in the 21st century. Absolutely. Well, thank you, uh, Sylvia, for this conversation today. I uh, really appreciate it and enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to our listeners uh, who tuned in for this. And oh, thank you so much, Asma. It was a wonderful conversation. It actually has given me a lot more, you know, food for thought to think about. So I, I appreciate all your really wonderful questions and, you know, giving me more to, you know, uh, go forward with in 2021. So thank you so much. Thank you. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.